Scripture reading for tonight is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. I didn't know I, I didn't need my own Bible. Uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'd like to begin tonight's lesson by asking you some questions about yourself. Are you a Phi Beta Kappa? Are you an All-American? Are you Miss America? Have you been listed in who's who? Were you voted most likely to succeed? Are you a prominent citizen of this community whose name frequently appears on the society page of the Montgomery Advertiser? If you answered yes to any or all of those questions, I've got some really good news for you tonight. God can still use you, even though he's going to have greater difficulty in doing so. But if, on the other hand, you have done or achieved none of those things that the world holds to be so precious and so vital and so important, God delights in using you. I know that because Paul just said so in the text that Patrick read in our hearing. You see, if you've never found the prize in the Cracker Jack box, I'm telling you that God desires to let his glory be seen in and through you. As a matter of fact, according to the text there in 1 Corinthians, he prefers to use ordinary people. I hope you'll hang on to that because that's going to be a recurring theme in this lesson tonight. And you'll understand why I say that all of us, when when you think seriously about the verses that we've just read, which are crucial to, to our study of what it means to be a temple of the living God. I mentioned that when I announced the lesson title for tonight. We are the temple of God. He lives in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. So before we look at, at why God has chosen to do things this way, we need to, I think, deal with a very practical matter. Is it humility to say, and I know I've been in discussions along this line with fellow Christians, is it humility to say that you cannot be used of God? And the answer to that in light of our text is an emphatic no. That's an insult to the mighty God who inhabits our heart. Believers sometimes stand with drooping shoulders and with an apologetic voice, and they declare, I just serve God in my poor little pitiful way. And when I hear that, I want to say, well, quit it. You need to serve God in the mighty, dynamic way that he is deserving. You're a temple of God, and he lives within you, and you need to act like it. What some people call humility, I call poor posture. My question to fellow Christians like this is, why should we be so inhibited when we are so inhabited? God really has a a terrifically wonderful plan. He's in the business of bringing glory to himself, and here's how he does that. He used what the world calls a foolish message. If you back up a few verses and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 
But to us which are saved, it is the power of God. He then chooses what the world considers to be a weak and unworthy messenger, and then he combines the two of those things in the crucible of his mighty power and his wisdom. And he does that in light of verse 29 of our text, so that no man will glory in his presence. And that way, God who lives in the house, watch this carefully, God who lives in the house gets all the glory and not the house. The house is of little significance, of little consequence, but it's the one who is residing in the house that is seeking and getting the glory. Now, to serve God in this mighty army of the ordinary, if we may call it that, there's some downright embarrassing qualifications we need to talk about. And I'm going to be dealing from the New King James Version, so that's a little bit different than the ESV that Patrick read. But all of these, I think, are easily translatable into one synonym or the other. First, there are what Paul calls in our text the foolish ones. God has chosen the foolish ones of this world in that list. The word foolish that Paul uses actually comes from a Greek word that is spelled M-O-R-O-S, morose. It probably comes as no surprise, even if you're not a Greek student, that that's the word from which we get our word moron. Wow. Paul's really cutting to the heart of the matter right up front. It denotes someone who is dull, someone who is intellectually slow, or maybe even somewhat silly. So if you are not at the top of your class, if you hold no Ph.D. degree, Does that mean that you cannot be used in the Lord's service? To the contrary, God is looking for someone just like you. Now remember, relationship is more important than scholarship. We're not denigrating the importance of scholarship, but we are simply setting a priority. Fellowship, relationship is more important even than scholarship. And then next in this list are are the weak ones. There are the foolish ones and then there are the weak ones. And this just means physical weakness. I imagine that get, encompasses some of this audience tonight. He's even talking about infirmity here. So are you weak and sickly? Is your physical constitution not what it used to be? Do you have to use a walker or a walking stick or maybe even a wheelchair to get around in? Well, congratulations. God can do some mighty things in and through your frail body. I know that because Paul has declared that in this text. As Paul himself said, His strength will be made perfect in your weakness. God can supply everything that is lacking. And you may be thinking about all the things I can't do anymore. And God is thinking about all the things you can do right now. Even with those limitations, God can use you in a powerful way. And then comes the base ones in this list. And that means one who is of lowly birth. One who is without pedigree. Maybe you're not from the aristocracy. Maybe you were not born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You may feel like the, the fellow that I heard about that was coming out of preaching school who said, I was not born in a humble, primitive log cabin like many of the great men and women of our country. But I want you to know that as soon as our family could afford one, we bought it and moved in. You know, It took a while for them to move up to that primitive, humble log cabin, but they finally got there. And praise God for the fact that he delights to use those who were born on the wrong side of the tracks. And that's really what this text is all about. Don't let the, the, what the world may consider your social inferiority keep you from serving God and being used in a mighty way by God. And then according to Paul, God also delights in using the despised ones. That word... As best I could determine, means those that the world writes off as being of no account. It means those who are treated with contempt and scorn. It might even incorporate the pariah of society. Do others look down on you? 
Have others constantly said to you that you'll never amount to anything? That just means that when God does use you, it's going to be apparent to everyone around that it is God who's doing the work. That God is the one who is doing it and and he'll get the glory. You see, that's a part of, of the grand design. And last of all, they're the ones who are, I think this is so interesting, at least in the version I'm working with, those who are not. That's an interesting thing to put on the list, isn't it? God can use those who are not. This refers to people who are completely overlooked. They don't even get to be despised. <laughs> you think about that. They'd have to get a promotion just to make the despised list. That's what Paul is saying. They're not considered good enough to be treated with derision. You would have to notice them before you would ever deride them. And Paul says nobody ever notices this group. They're not listed in who's who. They're not even listed in who's not. Now here's the question for application. By any chance, am I talking about you? Your name is never listed in the church bulletin. When people talk, your name is not discussed, either for good or bad. Do you consider yourself to be a nobody? Let me tell you tonight... As emphatically as I know how, with God, everybody is somebody. He's looking for someone just like you to use in a mighty way in his kingdom and in his service. And we're going to talk about the why behind this in just a moment. But your name may not be mentioned much down here. God wants you to make headlines from heaven. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying he can take all of these people that we just described and and these terms that we have just defined and use these people in a mighty and a powerful way. These are the kinds of ordinary people that God just absolutely delights to use. That's the message that Paul is communicating to the Corinthians and now to us. Now let me make three things perfectly clear regarding God's plan to use people just like you. And all of these three things are integral to this, this plan of God to use us, to use ordinary people in the army of the extraordinary. First of all, God doesn't say that no one, watch that carefully. If you're looking at the text, he does not say that no one who is mighty or noble is called. We need to make that distinction and that clarification. He just says that not many of this world's elite are going to seek him and seek to serve him. So we have to say that once we have looked at this list of the ordinary, or sometimes even whatever subordinary might be. We have to acknowledge that God can use everybody. I thank God for the wealthy people who are using their their financial resources that God has blessed them with. I call that the green thumb ministry in light of the list that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 12, 6 through 8. There are some people who have the green thumb ministry. They, They can turn anything into money, and God can use them in a powerful way. I thank God for the intellectuals, those who can succeed scholastically and who can teach our young people like we're doing here on this campus. I thank God for those people who are gifted and, and they don't need to be left out either. With those gifted people, those intellectuals who know and who serve the Lord Jesus Christ with every power of their being, they have to be acknowledged and commended and patted on the back as well. Paul, in fact, if you think about the one who made this list, he was one of those people, wasn't he? He was one of the aristocracy. He was one of those people whose name would be in the headlines of the newspaper on a given morning. This gifted religious aristocrat had one of the most scintillating minds of all time. He was sought after. He was flattered. He was praised by his peers. He had achieved the highest positions in the religious world. He had an impeccable academic pedigree. And yet Paul said concerning those very achievements over in Philippians 3 and verse 8, I do count them but rubbish that I may win Christ. And you may read some versions that have a different word for rubbish there that is much more graphic, but you get the idea. 
You know, a, a British woman of great nobility who came to the Lord said to her preacher one day, you know what, I got to thinking about it, and she'd been reading this text, and she said, I was saved by the letter M. And he kind of scratched his head, and he said, what do you mean by that? He was puzzled, and she said, well, God said not many who are no, noble are called. He did not say not any. And so the letter M saved me there. The second thing I want to emphasize about spiritual qualifications is this. God is not in this passage where he is talking about the ordinary, is not emphasizing these spiritual qualifications to encourage half-heartedness, laziness, or mediocrity. He's not saying if you're a gifted individual, then you need to dial it back a little bit before God can use you. He's not saying that at all. In fact, everything in Scripture tells us whatever resources, whatever talents and abilities that we have, we need to use them to the fullest. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10. So that, that's, that has to be noted about this text as well. God is saying, I can use everybody, but he's not encouraging us to deliberately try to, to, to dial back our abilities and talents and resources in order to, to meet this list. That's not at all his purpose. In fact, if you're a preacher or a teacher with only an average IQ, guess what? You're going to have to study harder in order to be able to do what someone who would be intellectually gifted could do. remember hearing about a, a preacher in Pennsylvania who was noted for being an expert fox hunter. An old Quaker once said to that preacher, if I were a fox, I would hide me where thee could not find me. And the preacher said, oh, where would that be? He said, in, in thy study. <laughs> you know, ow. Uh, some of us need to spend more time in the study in order to be able to, to do what God would have us to do with our limited talents. You may be a singer with less than a great voice, but still it ought to be your ambition to, to, to make that voice sing the sweetest note that it can in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not be a great, have a person of great physical strength, but the important thing is that every nerve, every fiber, every bone, every sinew in your body be given over completely to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him have every ounce and every inch of you. It's been well said. It doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian, but it does take all of him. And third, remember that Paul isn't talking about relying on our own strength anyway. That's not the purpose He's not saying that we're really going to be able to make great strides for the Lord if we can all garner our resources and we can develop and cultivate those and by our own power and strength, by our own charisma, by our own personality plus, by whatever that we've got going for us, we might get God's will done here on earth. That's not what Paul is saying in this passage either. He's not talking about our strength. The secret of the whole matter is that God gives to ordinary people extraordinary power. Remember, God is the one who does that. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, Ephesians 6 and verse 10. And he gave himself for us in order that he might give himself to us so that he might be able to live through us. And I hope that makes sense. The issue isn't so much our responsibility that Paul is emphasizing in this passage. He's really talking about our response to his ability. And once we've got that on straight, I think it will help us to really understand the application of this passage. So let's talk about that application for just a moment. I can't help but think, when I think of the power of the ordinary, of a certain man of Scripture, that I think of God using the, the ordinary person. And we know that man is, is John the Baptist or John the Immerser. Mark chapter 1, you want to check it out, feel free to do that, opens with this description of John. This is chapter 1. 
the sixth verse in to Mark's gospel account. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Let me stop right there and say, has your appetite been piqued? Probably not. And also allow me to state the obvious. His dress and his diet were considered weird even by first century standards. I think that's one of the reasons why it's pointed out. John understood clearly what his job was, though, and that's made clear in all the gospel accounts. His only job was to prepare the hearts of men and women for the coming of the Messiah. And he did that job in a remarkable way. Mark 1, 7, the very next verse reads like this. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. There was another occasion when Jesus defended the ministry and the methods of John in a very clear passage of Scripture that I think is very useful in this study. And this is Mark chapter, or Matthew rather, chapter 11, verses 8 and following. Matthew says this, but what did you go out to see? And this, this is wonderful. You know this passage. When people went out and heard John and came back going, well, that guy's weird. Jesus' response was, well, what did you go out to see? What did you think that you were going to see and hear when you went out to hear John preach. So what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Well, that's not where John lived. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, that, by the way, that gets us all, doesn't it? Of those born of women, there is not one risen who is greater than John. Again, Matthew 11, 8 through 11, if correctly read. That, that is the highest commendation and accolade that Jesus could ever pour out on anyone. I remind you, John's ministry and his message worked. Despite the fact that he was a base, ordinary man, what he did worked in a powerful fashion. Mark 1, 5. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And I, I realize that he's speaking hyperbolically. He's exaggerating to make a point. A part stands for the whole. The whole stands for the part. I understand the figures of speech being used here. But he's saying a preponderance of people that occupied the land of Judea went out and were listened to and heard John's message and responded to it in a positive way. It worked. God used him. Now, you and I might raise our eyebrows when we began reading this description about John and say, surely God couldn't use a man like that. I want to remind you, he did. He used John. And he used him powerfully. I don't think God chose John just because of those personal idiosyncrasies. I don't think that he was saying, I want, to, I want to find the strangest guy I can to just prove that anybody can carry my met. No, I don't think he was, had that in mind at all. I don't suggest that our, that our training pr uh, preachers, that we tell our preacher guys, now when you go out, I want you to act like to, ha to have the manner and the method and the dress and the diet of John the Baptist, and then you'll be a great success. I, I wouldn't recommend that either. But here's the point. Many a well-trained minister with all the ecclesiastical accoutrements. You know who I'm talking about, Dr. Sounding Brass or Dr. Tinkling Cymbal, for example, who, who does trust in, this wor in his worldly knowledge and ability has been passed by. And I mean this as, as best as I know how because for what should be obvious reasons, I love gospel preachers. 
But I'm telling you that any gospel preacher who climbs into the pulpit and he's only concerned about his image and about whether the people accept him on a personal basis, more so than are you listening to the message and is it making a difference in your life, is a man who needs to get out of that pulpit and not get back in another one. That's just my judgment. God uses people if they understand their place and his mighty plan. John understood that. God chose to use John the Baptist to bring glory to himself, and what a great way he did that. I can't help read this and think about the many men who occupy the pulpits in the North Georgia mountains when I was growing up as a boy. Let me tell you what, here's my recollection, and I think it's accurate. All these years past, there was not a college degree among them. And every one of them that I recall when I was growing up and sitting at their feet and listening to them present the unsearchable riches of Christ, my own dad included, uh, worked a secular job in order to put food on the table. Preaching was not their full-time occupation because they were not preaching for congregations that could afford that luxury. These were men who were doing what they could with what they had, the glory of the ordinary. And I'm telling you, folks, there are going to be people who are kicking up gold dust on the streets of heaven because of the work and ministry of men just like that around this country and around this world. We need to thank God for ordinary people who are using their talents to the glory of God each and every day. And I'm talking about people who are sitting right here under the sound of my voice tonight as well. When I consider God using weak things, as Paul has described them, I remember hearing about a teenage boy and his decision to become a Christian, not surprisingly, following a youth rally that his congregation had sponsored over the weekend. Now, during that youth rally, at least according to the information that I read, there was a man who was present during that youth rally that was there, you know, kind of as a, I guess, a celebrity sort of individual that hopefully his notoriety back in those days would make an impression and and the kids would listen more closely. This guy was at that time considered to be the strongest man in the world. Uh, And if you want to check, do some fact checking on that, his name was Paul Anderson. I met this guy one time. Uh, in my hometown of Jasper, Georgia, he worked with my dad for three years at Lockheed. So there really is a Paul Anderson. He really was considered to be the strongest man in the world at his time. He spoke in the youth rally that day, and he talked to those young people about what it means to live a life committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when that young teenage boy was talking to his youth mentor and saying, I, w- I want to be baptized, then the youth minister's first natural reaction was to say, well, what was it that Paul said that made you want to make this decision in your life at this moment? He said, oh, it wasn't anything that Paul said. It was what George Wilson said. Well, the youth minister scratched his head, was trying to think. He couldn't even remember who George Wilson was, whether he was even on the program that weekend. And then he recalled, then he recalled there was a fellow by the name of George Wilson who was a paraplegic, who was there in his wheelchair. And there was a time of sharing after one of the formal sessions in which George Wilson spoke of the joy of the Lord and the peace of heart that he had in his, in his heart, in his mind, and in his life. And, and, and he said that his, his face radiated like the noonday sun. What I'm telling you is that the student said to his youth minister just before they went into the baptistry, when I saw the happy expression on George Wilson's face, 
I thought if God can use a paraplegic in a wheelchair, then he can use somebody like me. On a night when the strongest man in the world was in the audience, in fact, on the speaking schedule, a man in a wheelchair led a young teenage boy to Christ. Don't you think that's a part of what Paul is talking about in this text? God can use the, the base, the ordinary, the plain, the blue collar. Even if you don't have a collar, God can use you. Now let me wrap this up by talking about God's noble base ones. What are the base things of the world that Paul refers to? Look at verse 28. The base things of this world. Do you remember that great Old Testament count of Gideon? And no, I'm not talking about the guy that put all the Bibles in the motel rooms. This is, this is a different Gideon. The Gideon in the Bible, he was about as humble and base as a man can be. He lived in a time of great trouble in Israel. And I'm going to boil this down very quickly, so don't worry. We're not going to go through the life of Gideon tonight. But the Midianites had overrun the land with their fierce warriors. And Gideon was in, in Judges chapter 6, and I want to... Reference verses 12 and 14 just a moment if you want to find those. Gideon was threshing wheat one day when an angel of the Lord appeared to, to Gideon as a messenger of God and said to him, and now I'm quoting, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. You shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Now here's a guy threshing wheat for crying out loud. And an angel appears to him and says, God is going to use you to help defeat the Midianites. Gideon had to have looked around to see who he was talking to. And, and, and when it dawned on Gideon, Gideon that he was being called a mighty man of valor, the Bible says he quickly protested. Verse 15, O my Lord, with what shall I save Israel? My family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. Think about what Gideon was saying. It was something like this. Of all the tribes in Israel, Manasseh is the worst. Of all the families in Manasseh, my family is the poorest. Of all the children in my family, I'm the run of the litter. What in the world can God do with me? Those are the questions that Gideon was asking that day. But let me tell you something. That is exactly what God wanted. If he had approached someone who was already full of himself, he could not have used that man. But here's a fellow who had no idea who the angel was talking about when he said, you mighty man of valor. And God said, that's exactly the person I can use. A man base enough that God could display his glory and his power and his might through him. And if you remember the story, you know that God made Gideon reduce the size of his army down to only 300 soldiers. It was then that God took a nobody general and a nothing army and defeated the Midianites and God got the glory. God has again and again chosen the base things of this world for his use. Let me end with one more quick illustration of this exciting principle. And you may want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17 so that when I get there, you're already caught up. Because when I think of the despised things of, that God has chosen, I, I have to think of young David who eventually became the king of all Israel. The episode I have in mind, of course, is David's historic battle with Goliath of Gath. You know the story. But let's look at the particulars for just a moment. In the valley of Elah, about 15 miles due west of Bethlehem, was the scene of that confrontation. The armies of, of Israel and the forces of the Philistines had been joined in battle, the Bible says, for almost six weeks at this point. Goliath was a monster of a man, almost 10 feet tall, wearing brass armor, stepped forward and delivered his challenge. The challenge was for Goliath to, to fight against single-handedly against some champion that the Israelite army had chosen. 
And he said, if, if he wins, then we'll serve you. And if I win, then you guys will serve us. You will be the conquered army. We'll be the conquering army. And he would raise his ham-like fist to God, blaspheme the God of Israel, and ridicule and taunt God's children. And the Bible said he did that on a daily basis. And David happened to be there one day when that took place. Who would want to take that challenge? Even mighty Saul was shaking in his boots. But David was there that day. He was really just a boy, a teenager with peach fuzz on his chin. But there was something in David that was stirred to a white-hot indignation when he heard the name of his thrice-holy God being mocked. And in the face of derision and certain scorn, David went forth to meet Goliath. You know the story. He was armed with just a sling and five smooth stones. Now, I I, I point out this this Old Testament illustration for one primary purpose in light of our text. There was a fundamental difference between David and everyone else that day that was present on that occasion that needs to be pointed out and emphasized. All the others were mumbling, look how much bigger Goliath is than we are. And David was thinking, look how much smaller than God Goliath is. Everybody else was thinking, he's too big to hit. David was thinking, he's too big to miss. You see, the fundamental difference is here's someone who is willing to be used by God in a powerful and mighty way. Now, at that point, look very quickly at the scriptural account. It thrills me every time I read it. And this is, trust me, it's just a brief synopsis of the entire story. I'm starting with chapter 17, 41, in just a few verses. So the Philistine came, began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. So here... Here's a guy who's nearly 10 feet tall. He has someone to, to, to carry his shield for him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a Ruth, ruddy, and good-looking. And so the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Notice that. Who's going to do this? I'm going to come out and I'm going to whip you. No, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you, and this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth, here's the whole point, David says, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Clearly, David was not intimidated by the Goliath, by Goliath's threats. He knew in his heart that the battle really did belong to the Lord, as we oftentimes sing. You see, the key to the victory to me is the last part of verse 46 where David declared that the victory would be his and then he gave the reason so that God's glory will be made known in all the earth. Do not miss that vital point. What would it have meant? Maybe you've thought about this. What if Israel had had its own giant warrior and that giant from Israel went out and fought the giant from the Philistine camp and the giant from Israel had, had won, or maybe not won, whatever. But let me tell you what that would have meant. Not a thing in the world. It would just have been a fair fight. That's all. One giant fighting another. The best we've got against the best you've got. But instead, when a despised, unknown teenage boy with faith in God wins the kind of victory that we see reflected in these pages, everyone is forced to admit that there is a God in Israel. 
Are you beginning to see why God enjoys using despised things so that he'll get the glory? Now, in the light of all of this, let's, as temples of the living God, make a threefold application in our lives. Number one, there is a rebuke. I'm going back to 1 Corinthians 1, by the way, if you want to turn back there. Verse 29, there is a rebuke to our pride that no flesh should glory in his presence. God will not share his glory with any other. How God hates the sin of spiritual pride. I cannot emphasize that enough. I've observed that God will keep using a person as long as that person keeps giving him the glory. Let me say that again. God will continue to use a person as long as that person is willing to give God the glory. Don't ever be like, don't ever be like the woodpecker who was pecking away on a pine tree when suddenly he was stunned by a bolt of lightning that split that pine tree from top to bottom. Hardly able to believe his eyes, the woodpecker backed off, looked at the damage for a few minutes, assuming that he was the one responsible for splitting the pine tree. And then he flew, flew away. And he came back with nine other woodpeckers, and with a great deal of swagger, he said, there it is, gentlemen, right over there. He thought he had done that. Now watch this now. This is, I hope you take this home with you. When we start to take credit for what God does, God stops doing it. Second, there is a reckoning of our power. Verse 30, the text says, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Do not ever insult God by saying that he can't use you. That's not humility, folks. That's blasphemy. Christ is alive and well, and he lives in you if you are his child tonight. You are the temple of his Holy Spirit. So don't be saying or praying, Lord, help me to use my love, my strength, and my wisdom. Instead, rely on his. Remember that God gives ordinary, extraordinary power to ordinary people. And third, third and finally, there's a response in our praise. That as it is written, he who glories... Let him glory in the Lord. You know how we ought to thank him and how we ought to praise him for what he's done, for what he continues to do, and for what he has promised to do for his people in the future. And what a magnificent plan that is. The great I am who is big enough to fill his mighty universe is still small enough to reside within my heart. You are the temple of God. If you are a part of his spiritual family, a part of his mighty army, he dwells in you. And now you need to act like it. I'm asking you tonight, are you living an inhibited life or are you living an inhabited life? God himself can dwell in your heart this night if you submit yourself to him. Through faith and repentance, being baptized to have all of your past sins washed away by his blood, you can be a part of his mighty army starting right now while we stand and while we sing.